This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Manichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Speaking of the union, Jay. Yeah. We're joined by a union member on this episode. He was here not too long ago for our Depeche Mode roundtable, Depeche Mode Ah, in the 90s. You might remember that from a few months back where we discussed the band as they had just put out a new record and it was a good time to discuss uh, that band, obviously, because they were, I feel like a, I feel like I took a college level course in Depeche Mode with, I know, (laughs) I I now know more about Depeche Mode than I know about like (laughs) Allison Shane's and, and (laughs) like all these bands that I supposedly grew up with. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't really know much about Mike Starr. I know way more about David Gahan. Let me tell you about Alan Wilder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So without further ado, let's welcome back Ian McIver. Welcome back, Ian. Hello there. Uh, you brought to us that Depeche Mode um, roundtable. That was your suggestion. And I believe, yep. I believe that this record ties in pretty closely to that. This is the year of the, of the mode. Yes. <laughs> uh, that, that's pretty much every calendar year for me for the past 30 plus years. So, but uh, yes. Um, so I, I've brought uh, forward uh, Alan Wilder's uh, Recoil Unsound Methods from 1997. So I mentioned this during the round table uh, so, of course, uh, we don't need to go too much in the history of the Pesh Boat since we have an episode. But uh, June 1st, 1995, uh, Alan Wilder leaves the band. Uh, prior to leaving the band, he did release a side project recoil. He had uh, uh, three releases. So in 86, uh, during uh, Black Celebration, he released uh, one and two. Uh, and then in 1998, uh, coincided with the uh, music for the masses. Uh, was Hydrology, uh, the CD release. That was the first one and also included uh, uh, one and two. So it was a Hydrology plus one and two. Uh, and then in 1992, so in between Violator and Songs of Faith and Devotion, I did mention this in the round table, he released Bloodline, which had uh, vocals from uh, Douglas McCarthy on the single Faith Healer. Um, Obviously, uh, Alan working with the band in 1991 with the As Is EP, uh, doing the mix for Come Alive, and then the production duties uh, with Flood on Edhead. And um, that album also had uh, Tony Halliday of, Cur- of Curve uh, providing vocals, and then Moby as well, uh, under his real name, Richard Hall, providing uh, vocals on one track, uh, Moby at the time being on uh, Mute Records. And so... Uh, after he left the band, um, uh, there was uh, some some light talk. I mean, I don't think anything was ever serious. Um, it was more because Daryl Baumont left uh, 
the Depeche Mode organization went and joined his brother Perry Belmont with the Cure, and uh, kind of made the offer uh, to to join the Cure. Of course, joining a band was the last thing on Alan Wilder's mind. Uh, I don't know how serious this was. It seems to be more just cursory prodding since the bands have had history together and have known each other so uh but uh, he decided no i'm going to continue with this project and so uh for for this album he continued the trend with working with vocalists uh, he brought back douglas mccarthy again um uh, Siobhan Lynch was an art vocalist uh he came across her through a demo tape i don't know I, I always assumed it was some demo that was sent to mute. Uh, it could have been one that was passed on to him through acquaintances. So uh, since he does production and remix uh, work, uh, so it could have been through that. Um, the other vocalist was Hilda Campbell, who was one of the uh, backup uh, singers on the devotional tour. And she also provided vocals on Songs of Faith and Devotion with uh, Get Right With Me. And then the last was a uh, spoken word artist, uh, Meg Estep. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away, uh, I believe, in 2009, and she provided vocals as well. So he was looking kind of for someone to do like a rap, wasn't finding satisfactory for, for what he wanted, and then came across uh, her uh, more through her, um, her spoken word albums and said, okay, this, this will work. <laughs> so... Uh, that, that's who we assembled for this album. And this was released in October 97 on Mute, which is where yep. all the releases were. They were all yeah. on, on Mute. Um, Jay, had you heard Recoil before this, other than when uh, Ian <laughs> talked about it in the Depeche Mode no. episode? No, I had, I had not heard it or known anything about it until I then. I feel like... I just kind of like heard it in passing, but never like knew what it was or because I've listened to a lot of, you know, electronic music and, and um, especially in the, in like the trip hop uh, ish electronica, um, whatever you want to call it space. Um, and there's a lot of bands that like the names kind of float around, but I never really checked them out um, other than sort of like the big bands that most people are familiar with like massive attack or tricky or stuff like that. So I wasn't really sure what was going on with this. Um, so this is the first record that he releases after leaving Depeche Mode, correct? Yes, this is, is any work. So this is the first work that was done after he left the band. So uh, he, he didn't uh, pick up any production or remix work. So he, he took some time off even after uh, leaving the band and then started recording this in um, uh, the fall of uh, 96. Now, I didn't realize when I was doing my research on his history, how many bands he was in mm. before Depeche Mode. So yeah. he was in a band called The Hitmen, yep. um, which uh, that was like 81. And then he was also in a band called The Flatbackers. He was in a band called Real to Real, for not the there was another band called real to real this is a different real to real um he was in a band called the corgis (laughs) um daphne and the terrible bad names and then the first the first band jay you're gonna appreciate this the first band was called the dragons 
Oh my goodness. Which sounds like it would be like a, a gothic metal band or something like that. But there's the it's called the I don't know if it's the single of the album is called Misbehaven, which made me think <laughs> of the Righteous Gemstones. Because yeah. uh, of the Misbehaven song. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, just, just, just wait until we cover our nine inch nails episode and then we can go through the bands that Trent Reznor was involved with. Oh, I know. But, but when when you comment about familiarity, so uh if you saw Nine Inch Nails in 2000 on the Fragility Tour, um, the the follow-up album to this, Liquid, uh, Trent Reznor did use that as part of the pre-show music. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I noticed that, so that album came out in 2000, and then Subhuman came out in 2007. And yep. There hasn't been anything since then. Is is the, this still an active project, or does is he doing other uh, things, or did he retire? Yeah. Um, so in 2010, he did have the selected compilation and uh, spent the, the year uh, promoting that uh, uh, with the uh, selected events. Um, and that also continued a bit in 2011 as well. Uh, in 2012, that uh, the video from, uh, from Budapest was, was released on, on Blu-ray. And he also uh, executive produced a... Um, a tribute album to uh, Talk Talk, where he were he also uh, did um, uh, two tracks. Uh, he also um, remixed, uh, did a remix for uh, Alessandro uh, Cortini of uh, Nine Inch Nails for his uh, uh, Sonio. I, I don't know how to completely pronounce it. It's Italian, and it's a combination of two words. Uh, but um, he did do a remix for that, and then. The last thing he's done, it was in 2016, I believe, for uh, he did a piano for a single for an up-and-coming artist, uh, Didi, uh, again, going back to Daryl Balmont, who was uh, managing her. So uh, um, in, in 2011, he did auction off a lot of gear and memorabilia. Okay. Uh, I know because I bought some of that. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, uh but uh no i mean he hasn't uh there's never been anything issued formally for retirement but uh i mean he's spent uh time raising his family similar like between 2000 2007 i mean took some time there to to be involved with family uh also um currently his uh estate uh the lands, uh, the house is being sold in the UK in uh, Sussex. So, uh, but the uh, the building that houses uh, the Thin Line uh, Studios is not part of that sale. Oh. So, so um, <clears throat> whether uh, that's an ind indication of any willingness to work, but um, I mean, you're going to have to assume that, uh, like. Some people like he was probably responsible with his finances and obviously with the patch mode, especially him being involved with their imperial phase. I mean, that that probably had uh, some good uh, residuals until uh, any music sales for yeah, anyone took say. a tank. <laughs> yeah, based on this time in Depeche Mode, I'm pretty sure he's set for life just in terms of royalties uh, yeah. for the amount of uh, singles that have you know, sold and albums that have sold and continue to stream. I mean, their streaming numbers are, you know, way up there. So I'm, I'm sure those pennies are rolling in pretty con consistently for him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we'll share our Patreon 
uh, were the album better EP decent single votes at the end of this. And I do apologize to you because I, I had this post <laughs> for the preview ready and then I just forgot to hit the post button. So yep. it went up late. So we didn't get a lot of uh, feedback on this episode from the Patreon community. And I apologize to the whole Patreon community for that. I will. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised at the same time. I mean, we, we've commented on this and, and dig me out uh, on the Discord uh, before that a lot of the big bands, everyone will come out from the woodwork. I mean, two right. prime examples from this year, Soundgarden and Hole. But then when it comes to some of the lesser known bands, it's like not as many comments. And uh, so, I, I mean, this is definitely one that is, is being dug out because everyone knows of the primary band, the Pesh Mode, but obviously right. never really, really took much of a deep dive because, I mean, until the 2000s, really, I mean, like this project and even Martin Gore, his, his EP was released uh, and, and that was kind of buried in between married music for the masses, 101 violators. So, uh, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't until they were taking time in between to actively promote these uh, items <laughs> and releases that it, it was kind of like, okay, if you knew the band and, and obviously, uh, kept, uh, kept up on them. I mean, you, you weren't going to. <laughs> right. Well, let's get into the record. Uh, and talk about what we liked and what we didn't like about this. So, Jay, why don't you share one thing you liked about Unsound Methods by Recoil? The the songs are kind of unpredictable, and I like that. Um, yes, they're they're soundscapey. Um, there's incorporations of a lot of different like styles of bits and pieces here. Um, I don't want to say songs, um, but it's like throughout a song you get elements that are jazzy you get elements that are a little bit rock you know elements that are kind of 80s electronic but you kind of don't know where some of these songs are going to go which i enjoyed quite a bit um i like how they're using vocals too there's you know variety of voices and delivery um so you get this kind of moody smoky female and male voices coming in um sometimes even like calm response type things or at least like two vocals at once which really i think helps build some of the intensity it almost had like a electronic tom waits feel to it to me sometimes um <laughs> with how the delivery is and like just like the eclectic mix of instruments coming in you weren't always show, sure where things were going there's a bit of a like dark noir kind of vibe through the whole thing too which reminded me a bit of some of his stuff i like that it all builds to crescendo too it's not just like you know start a loop let it play for four minutes and then later in instruments it's building to something and the way that they kind of get there um you're not quite sure when it's going to happen and how you're going to get there but you eventually get to you know some kind of crescendo which i enjoy quite a bit um, from a dynamic standpoint. So it's not just, you know, flat songs. Um, it's very cinematic. I even noticed like one of the songs is credited to uh, Francis Ford Coppola, which I'm assuming is taking samples from his movies or something. 
Yeah, that's uh, Incubus. And so it, the original demo uh, that was sent to Douglas McCarthy did have samples, but then he essentially does an impression of, of uh, Martin Sheen. Uh, but uh, he, he used that for inspiration for his vocals from and Apocalypse the, the now, delivery. Yeah. So from Apocalypse Now, so he so um, so that that's why. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, the, the like I said, all the lyrics are actually Douglas McCarthy. It's not uh, sampled from the movie. <laughs> gotcha. So yeah, there's this cinematic quality, I think, to the whole record, uh, both musically, you know, they're using strings, kind of string beds, cellos. There is a dyma- dynamic, like, crescendo to the songs. But even, like, you know, there's several tracks here that have spoken vocals that read, like, do- movie dialogue almost, or, um, you know, a novel, which I thought was really cool, too. Uh, it added to that sort of... Um, unpredictability like kind of pulled into the story but then also the music's going along with it um so i thought that was cool the last thing i thought were that kind of tied all that together to be something um a little bit more relatable but you know there were a couple moments where i could hear the depeche mode come through so control freak and stalker to me had hook parts in them that were very reminiscent of something i'm you know, might expect to hear in a Depeche Mode song. And I think those moments throughout the record kind of help pull it back from being, you know, extremely experimental to something that's a little bit easier to get your hands around, um, a little bit more accessible and like familiar. So yeah, I think those elements coming together was was what I liked the most. What were for you, Tim? Well, I agree with you. The cinematic aspect of this in a lot of ways reminded me of a of a band like Uncle where it almost uh, it sounds like a predating uncle in a lot of ways, this record, even though it's, I know it's like within a year or two of the, the uncle record, I think it's like 98 or 99, that first uncle release. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly science year. fiction. Yeah. I think that's yeah. 98. So, and I, I love that aspect where you take, you know, it is essentially trip hop um, with, we, we heard that in the nineties with every massive attack and Portishead and, you know, artists that I've mentioned, um, and adding uh, little twists here and there. Um, it reminded me of like listening to Martin Gore's solo stuff. He did some EPs recently and you hear the Depeche Mode like sort of vibe, but he takes it in a different direction. Um, the best way I put it like those, like the Martin Gore stuff sounded like a lot of the instrumental tracks that you would hear on Depeche Mode records. And this it's strangely enough, this there's parts of this that do remind me of uh, Depeche Mode 
um, in the '90s, specifically Ultra, which is which comes out, you know, same time, and um, where it has this very dark edge to it that I really liked. It has. Um, I was we were trying to explain trip hop to my ten year old, which how do you explain trip hop exactly <laughs> to a ten year old other than just play it? So we play like we play Teardrop by Massive Attack, and you're like, okay, so it's got this beat, which is you know sort of in the vein of like hip hop, but then it's adding these layers of like a lot of minor key, strings, synths, pianos, um, and it, it's it sounds like late at night in the coolest club you're never going to get into. Like that's what trip hop sounds to me. And that's what this record sounds like. It sounds like this would be playing in a movie th- scene where it's like this dark, cool club with beautiful people that are very, you know, on the edge of like, uh, of um, uh, goth meets, uh, I don't know, future cyberpunk kind of look. Um but that's I, I absolutely love that. Like I I love um what he's doing here in you mentioned it, Jay, building these songs up, creating crescendos with with strings. Um there's a lot of really nice bass tones. I don't know if they're physical, you know, you know, organic bass or keyboard bass. You know, he might be mixing those in together, but um there's a lot of great sounds. And it doesn't, nothing, um, I appreciated that nothing like deviates so much that it draws your attention. You go, well, this is weird. Why is this in here? Like it maintains an atmosphere throughout the record while changing things up from song to song. Um, There's no like heavily distorted, you know, song that just breaks in halfway through or something like that. Like when he uses distortion, it's very tasteful and it's very like crafted for the track. Um, and I, I do want to mention the vocalist. Like, I think, um, what's her, Siobhan? I Siobhan always have a, yeah. I always have a hard time pronouncing that name because it doesn't look like Siobhan. Um, yeah. But I really like Drifting. I, that's really strong song. And I like Missing Piece, the other one that she sings. Um, and I like uh, what um, Douglas McCarthy is doing on like Stalker. And there's just, there's a lot of cool, and what Hilda, Hildia Campbell does on Red River Cargo and, and Last Breath, I'm not as in love with like spoken word stuff, but I think it works. Um, it's just like, it, it doesn't work as well as a melodic vocal for me, um, which we can get to that in the stuff that doesn't work. But let me go to you, Ian. What works for you for this record? Especially, I'd like to know, this is pretty different when you compare it to Depeche Mode in yeah. terms of like, it's not about pop singles. It's not about a big hook the way that like, you know, we talked about Violator. Violator is like hit after hit after hit that. And there's all great hooks on that record. This is a much more like, listen to it a couple times, get into the groove. It's not as instantly blatantly yeah. um, rewarding as, as, as that is. So what works for you on this? Okay, well, I'll just state for for the listeners. I mean, full disclosure, this is definitely my my favorite album for the project, and okay. that. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, what works? I mean, like 
obviously i mean i've been i was following the band before listening to this album so i mean in a way this came to me as part of a, a natural evolution right. it wasn't something that i picked up years later i mean i got this when it was when it came out and so um but uh i mean throughout the the history of of the pesh uh, you can definitely hear the influence that Alan had on the band and, and then especially leading up and uh, I mean songs of faith and devotion is obviously the definitely the poster child for Alan Wilder's involvement and, and production and, and studio work with the band and there are some demos that were released in 2009 uh, for um, I feel you walk in my shoes and Judas and, and Judas is the one that I want to highlight because you can hear how Judas evolved, and then especially the last instrumental part of that song, and even with Walk in My Shoes with uh, the B-side, My Joy, the, the the slow slide mix, which was done by Alan Wilder, and you can hear, okay, this is the direction he <clears throat> was going. This is what he interests him, and then you go into here, and you can see it's a continuation. It's not like, yes, this project was born because Alan Wilder was tired of being constrained with that pop song format. And here's an alternative and this album, especially, and you can hear it with the other uh, previous releases as well. It's like, yes, he's not working within that format. One, one and two had a lot of Depeche uh, uh, samples in it. And he did that on a four track uh, studio recorder and, and created something completely different. Um, but with this, there is still that experimentation uh, and definitely that element of um, avant-garde that Depeche had uh, during Alan Wilder's uh, involvement with the band uh, from construction time again to, to devotion and something, uh, unfortunately, the band has kind of been missing since he left. Um, I mean, obviously, Martin Gore is still very much interested in, in, in the electronics and electronic music. You can hear that in, in the past. You can hear that in his own uh, solo albums and even the, the project he did with Vince Clark in, in 2011, 2012. But uh, that, exper like I said, that avant-garde element is kind of missing. And Alan definitely brought that to the table. Uh, it, it, not uh, discounting, obviously, all the production and studio work he did, but I mean, it's definitely something that shows, yes, Martin and Alan both brought two things to the table that just worked well, melded, and created something that was greater than the sum of its parts. Um, but this album, I mean, like like going through the, the tracks, I mean, like you mentioned, like Drifting and Stalker and Missing Peace, though those were the singles. Drifting was the lead single, and then Stalker and Missing Peace were uh, were a double A side. Um, worth noting that single was completely re remixed. Um, I definitely recommend listening to it uh, as well. That single also brought on uh, Paul Kendall, who uh, did the remix with Wilder, and then they would continue to work on the subsequent re recoil uh, releases together. Um, and uh, uh, and like 
like you said, I mean, this has that atmosphere. It's very cinematic. Uh, I know he he commented, I believe it was in the the liquid uh, electronic press kit that was released around the time of the album. And actually, I'm sorry, that was also an enhanced CD and it was actually included on the album. But um, he, he said that, yes, a lot of what he listens to and what he looks at when he goes to music store is soundtracks. It's like, okay, this is how I'm getting that atmosphere because obviously compared to just general songwriting, I mean, when you're going in for a, a soundtrack, I mean, look at John Williams. I mean, like, you know, star Wars and what the emotion that evokes same way, Superman, yes, very heroic, very hopeful, very triumphant, Indiana Jones, uh, very adventuresome. And then of course, Jaws, the dread. So like, like, just look at those soundtracks from one composer. It's different. They all sound very familiar because you can recognize the style, but, uh, and that's what you can hear definitely with these, uh, these albums from Alan Wilder, you can hear his signature thumbprint all over the music. Yeah. It's like a, um, like control freak, for example, that doesn't sound like that baseline that sort of like rolling like dun, 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 like that is in the same vein as like stuff that's happening on ultra like that tone yeah. makes me curious like what would have happened if some of this material had David Gahan singing over it because some of I mean there's a lot of really cool stuff on here but he's got such a unique voice that yeah. it did it did occur to me like oh I wonder what that would have sounded like but I, I did you mentioned about the experimentation and we, we talked about it a little bit like I think the thing I appreciate about it is it's there but it's not overwhelming so like example would be like shunt um, yeah. It's like, you know, the four minutes of that song, it's kind of, it is what it is. And then it goes to like this double time thing that happens for like the last two and a half minutes of the song where yeah. it's, it's a really str like strange rhythm change, but it works really well because yeah. it adds this, like it, it adds this intensity to the end of the song. Um, but I wouldn't want a whole song like that. Like it would be too much to do the whole six and a half, six forty-seven, whatever of yeah. that. But I like that change, even though it's weird um, in the in the context of the song. What about you, Jay? Is, are there parts or any experimentation that you appreciated, or or things that you heard that um, caught your ear, such as that? Yeah, there was um, there's some pretty sophisticated like combinations of rhythms and like synth loops and little 
yeah, drum changes that are that are really cool. Again, it breaks out of the you don't always know what the pattern is going to be. And I think for me personally, that's important with electronic music. Like one of the, the thing that I'm I negatively react to is like when I can pick up the pattern, then I start to get bored. So I think they do a really good job of keeping things varied and even rhythmically the way they're combining instruments together. They're not always straightforward. They're a little bit weird sometimes. Um, right. And then so, and so even vocally, the way the way the vocals coming in or the way the vocals delivered isn't always predictable with I, which again, I think is helping a ton here um, in terms of, and there's not a ton of like, if I was to break down and make a list of the sounds on the record, like I don't, yes, there's a lot of a good amount, but there's not like, there, there is a format here, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like there is a mm -hmm. finite set of sounds that are being used to, to make the record and to keep sort of a, a cohesion to it, which I think helps um, as well. And then they're, they're using a lot of rhythm, I think, to help break things up or putting in little breaks and whatnot to keep it interesting. Yeah, his, his website back in the day, and I, I believe it's back, uh, a lot of it's been, been back up there. It went through a couple of changes, now kind of includes a lot of archival stuff. But I know back in the day, uh, uh, Shunt, uh, the, the site that he had, was um, had a breakdown of the technical equipment he had. The, the thing I want to say, I think it feels performed and arranged mm -hmm. rather than like push the button, the 120 yep. beat four on the floor thing goes and yep. you just kind of like add things on top of it. Like there's, there's real arrangement happening with these songs, which helps with the building of the, of the tension and the, and the cinematic aspect of the record. Yeah. Um, yeah that definitely continued on from, from devotion where there was a lot of live performance. Like it wasn't live drums throughout all of, I feel you, for example. I mean, he grabbed the samples, they processed it, mm -hmm. uh, digitized it and then created the loops from it and a lot of that bits and pieces of performance were, were grabbed and able to create something that sounded organic but at the same time is still very electronic and i mean he it makes sense because he was able to do that when he was just using you know a, a, a programmer and a synthesizer with like do 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 like you yeah. know he was able to still create that sort of like tension and and arrangement in his writing then yeah th that's my impression of all 80s synthesizer band drums. <laughs> yeah, there, there, yeah there's a, a there's a video uh, from 1986 from from the black celebration era where, where he's working with the emulator and he's recreating um uh christmas island which was a b-side to a question of lust uh, it was also used as the instrumental opening for the the tour but of course he's showing okay here's the the, the drum pattern then looping that and then keeps on adding and, and building up the song on the emulator. I find um, musicians that are really, really good with synthesizers to be pretty amazing because I watched a documentary about not documentary. It was like a behind the scenes of how the guys who created the stranger theme, stranger things theme did it. Um, they were a band called survive and it's, it's two guys. And um basically that whole thing is just like an it's arpeggio but then they are constantly like manually turning the envelope filter to create 
the the swell and then the and then the drop and the swell but you, you have to turn it in time with the arpeggio so it has to match the the time signature and it's manual you, you he can't program that because it's a literally a button on his or a knob on his synthesizer so i'm always impressed by like and people who can not only do that like manipulate the synthesizer live but then can also dial in a specific weird sound over and over again, like where you have to turn this, do this, mm -hmm. this knob has to go here and you have to adjust this like 55%, but it's like, they're not like looking at a dial. They're just like, uh, yep, that's it right there. Yeah. And go on, that, go on that my always, feel. Yeah. Jay, uh, is there anything on the record that doesn't work for you? There's some long intros on this rec on the record that um, don't always, to me, have much to do with the song. I, I could cut quite a few of those. Uh, they feel like segues, but I'm not sure these song need songs always need segues. Um, I think. Maybe a couple of them is fine, but I just felt like to get to every song, like to get to the meat of like, oh, okay, here's here's where the real song starts. It's it was taking too long. Uh and I was getting bored with a lot of the intros. Um and then just some of the like 90s trip hop stuff just feels a little, I don't know, dated or cliche to me. It it makes it feel like a 90s record. I think the best example is maybe like drifting uh, is the song that I would say like it's also maybe the most straightforward in terms of you know just trying to be like a I guess a trip hop song. It, it uh, sounds it, like sneaker pimps or or yeah yeah it's very forgettable compared to the rest of the record I think which is much more ambitious. Um, so yeah, that that's the only stuff that didn't work for me. How about it's, you? It's the little in drifting. It's that on the hit, it's like, wah, wah. it's got this little like keyboard hit. It's like a double tap. Mm -hmm. And I know I've heard that in like a dozen other trip hop songs. And also the, the record scratching dates it, mm -hmm. um, which I, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily dislike, you know, like Portishead uses it. And I still love Portishead. Um, and I agree with you. And some of the intros like Incubus, like I started the album and I was like, did I turn the album on? Cause there was nothing mm -hmm. happening for like 25 yeah. seconds. And then you just yeah. slightly hear something kind of rumbling up. And then it's like two minutes by the time the song mm -hmm. actually starts to kick in. It's not even like it kicks in. It just, then we start to get to the, the drum pattern <laughs> right. and stuff. And then we got it. Mm. So that I did find that like, 
slow build was like almost too slow. I don't I don't necessarily hate a slow build intro, but it was so long that I was questioning whether I actually had turned like play, press play or not. Um, I also I don't love Maggie Steps. Is that is it my second? Maggie Steps, yeah, yeah. I don't love her vocal performances. Um, the one on um, Luscious Apparatus, it just yeah. kind of gets a little over the top for me. Um, yeah. It's fine. I, I just, in general, I'm not a huge fan of like spoken word parts in songs, unless it's like, you know, two sentences in a bridge or something like that. Um, so that doesn't necessarily work as well. I think what Douglas McCarthy does with the Francis Ford Coppola dialogue is cool and incubus i think also because he's more reserved that it doesn't jump out as much whereas she gets very dramatic with her delivery and it makes sense because she's a spoken word poet and and would be like very dramatic and performing as opposed to singing uh which yeah. you know that's kind of the route more that douglas mccarthy even though he's pronouncing every you know or he's not singing he's it's spoken but it's much more ominous sounding yeah. uh so that that didn't exactly work for me ian is there anything that doesn't work for you on the record uh well the fact that stalker and missing piece weren't released on vinyl that's probably the biggest thing that doesn't work <laughs> for me <laughs> but uh, um no um Go, going back to what you said earlier, and, and even to the uh, Depeche Mode in the 90s, I mean, I didn't see too much uh, about Ultra because I wanted to save a bit for it, for it, for this. I mean, this album and, and Ultra, I definitely, uh, these are, are two albums that are linked. Uh, I mean, it helped that they, probably doesn't help that they came out the same year. And like I said, even in the, the, the Depeche Roundtable, I mean, Drifting was released on October 30th. 13th the single then the useless single the following week on the 20th and then unsound methods was released on the 27th so you had three consecutive weeks of that release but um no i mean the the ultra and unsound methods to, to me are definitely uh two sides of the same coin um you, you can you can hear where both uh, Martin Gore with the songwriting and Alan Wilder with his production and, and sounds kind of where they've branched off. And uh, and these are probably the two albums that are, are closely sound uh, related before there's a far more divergence in, in their later, uh, later catalogs. But uh, I mean, and it's, it's always, kind of wondering it like ultra definitely is, is some of martin gore's finest uh lyrics that he has written for the band uh, but of course the album is lacking because it doesn't have the atmospherics and like i said it's missing that avant-garde element that the previous releases had that kind of hinders it a bit and then you listen to this album and Alan Wilder is a, a fantastic producer and, and soundscapes and everything, but obviously, I mean, he doesn't have uh, the the pop hooks for for writing that Martin Gore has. I mean, otherwise, I mean, like this album was was promoted. I mean, I, I've I've got right here on the on the on the stalker single because it still has the sticker saying 
recoils Alan Wilder X Depeche Mode. But obviously, I mean, that name in itself wasn't enough to carry over to have as big as commercial success as, as some people do. It's not like boy bands where they're a giant Voltron of pop music and then they all break off into their own little independent solo stuff and we've got like a spice girls album then we've got five solo albums or nsync and well uh, uh, i won't continue on usually but, it's uh, one person carrying those bands yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah the, so, sometimes there's one survivor but uh but a lot of times it's like no they just get back together because they had five meandering albums uh not mm-hmm. to say that this was a, a meandering project i mean it was successful in its own right uh, and and that uh, alan wilder did continue to release uh subsequent releases so uh but um yeah but th- there's not much that, that doesn't work for me. I mean, when I go, uh, I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with this album, listen to it quite often, but going back to, to 97, 98, when I, when I was first listening to this and uh, at first it was like, okay, this is, this is different, but it's familiar. It's, it's like, I, I, I know what I'm listening to. It's kind of like a comfortable blanket. Like, even though it's, it's different it's but uh it there wasn't anything that really put me off from this album it's like okay i gotta go back and give this a second listen or or another chance and that wasn't something that just like okay it's got the band's name on it or it's a former member and it's like okay pick it up and then it's like okay it just sits on the shelf and meanwhile you continue on with the main band i mean there's probably several projects out there that the the dig me out community can can reference where it's like yeah i love the main band but whatever side project or solo stuff it's like yeah it just collects dust (laughs) but this isn't the case for for me with with recoil i mean uh, i've always uh, i mean especially since alan wire has left the the pesha mode i mean i definitely consider a separate entity and yeah i count both as part of my 10 favorite bands where there are some other stuff where it's like i don't consider it a side projects because it's like okay one i can pad the list and but dilute i mean this is definitely its own entity its own project and uh and it, it deserves the spot i'm glad you mentioned that you link this with ultra because i kind of now see it as the flip side to ultra with with the split with him splitting off from the band. Like I didn't know I needed this record to like compliment ultra, but now hearing it, I go, Oh, okay. This totally makes sense in context to why ultra was different than the previous two albums from the decade and, and what it sounded like with him leaving the band. So um, I feel like this, this kind of helps me greater appreciate that record. I know I was the oddball saying that that was my favorite record of, of the uh decade or oh, whatever there's there 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 are a lot of the pesh fans out there i i see them on 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 social media who, who say yes ultra is my favorite record and like i said i i will not deny deny that like i said ultra is definitely martin gore's finest lyrical work mm-hmm. and that and that and uh i mean 
whether or not people consider it to be part of their imperial phase, I definitely do. I mean, coming in at number one in the UK again, I mean, following a number one album of songs of faith and devotion definitely shows that, yes, they, they were still in their imperial phase at that point. And it's just unfortunately that that's the finish line of their imperial phase and Alan Wilder was not there. Whether that's a coincidence or not, who knows? I mean, a lot of people who had success in the 80s and 90s kind of maintained a popularity in the 2000s, but it wasn't. It was more their audience had grown and had money than bringing on new fans. Right, right. Which a lot of bands, if they don't, you know, expand the fan base, there's a, uh, there's, it's just the old fans sticking around, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah. But Depeche Mode, I mean, to their credit, they've been able to still play stadiums and, oh yeah, you know. Yeah, there's still touring still stadiums impressive. right now in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Actually, I think there was a concert tonight. So <laughs> so let's get to our final rating on this record, Jay. Let's talk Worthy Album, Better EP, or Decent Single. Where do you land? I'm at a Worthy Album. I, uh, you know, I think this is something you can um, put on passively while you're doing something else, and it's a cool atmospheric thing. I also think some of the storytelling is... Uh, it's pretty compelling um, and fun and interesting in some of the songs. So I, I'm going to wear the album. There's like I mentioned, there's a couple moments here that um, I could lose. It's a little long, you know, all these songs are over five minutes, but it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's um, much more avant-garde than I expected. So yeah. I had fun with it. What'd you think? I agree with you. I, I did really enjoy this we're the album for me um it slots in really well like sort of in between depeche mode and the trip hop that i like which is Mm. an interesting space to be in um so you know other than a couple of the maggie step songs uh i really liked the rest of the record and i'm always uh i know i've listened to something that i like because i instantly like want to start making some music like it inspires me to go, Oh, I want to, there was that one weird sound. And I wonder if I can like get something weird like that. So, and I immediately was like, there was like some bass tone and I was like, Ooh, I like that bass. I like the way that bass sounds. I wonder if I can recreate that. And then usually I can't and I give up and don't make anything. <laughs> it's what happens. Cause I'm sitting there just like getting frustrated. Like, why can't I get that thick tone that he's getting? I was like, Oh, cause he's, not using an Apple Garage Band plugin, is, yeah. he's actually using the real gear that's necessary to make that sound. So, yeah, worthy album for me, Ian. It's perfunctory, but I'm going to yeah. say, mm-hmm. is it worthy album for you? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Like I said, this is my favorite album for for the the project, um, and uh, uh, it's it's always been been one of my my favorites. I mean, even going back to university, it was going on the bus ride home from from uh university to to my parents i mean this was always one that went into the uh cd uh slip case to to bring on my backpack so i can listen to music on the bus <laughs> well uh there weren't a lot of votes but they were for uh where the album 100 percent yeah that that actually is mine because i noticed when uh, i was looking to see if there was any comments to address so 
but like I said, uh, you're earlier, allowed to vote on your own record. It's all right. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like, I wasn't going to. But like I said, uh, but like I said earlier, I mean, this this is definitely uh, one I I, I knew. I know even for any subsequent picks that, that I make, I mean, I'm not going to get the response unless I pick a band like Ministry or Cam FDM where there, there's a bit more of a, a name recognition. Sure. Um, what I found interesting just when I was doing the research is that uh, if you go to Ultra's Wikipedia page, it lists the genres as alternative rock and trip hop. Yeah, which I don't really hear those in the in Depeche Mode's Ultra. But if you go to Unsound Methods Wikipedia page, the genre is electronica, okay. which I don't hear electronica because I think of like the Prodigy. Yeah, you know, being electronica, chemical, chemical, chemical brother, especially that that big band or big beat sound. Not yeah, the big, big beat sound, <laughs> and this is not big beat at all. It's almost like they have like they, this they to me is all, is the trip hop end of it. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, like the Pesh had trip hop sounds. I mean, especially in the devotional tour where Alan Wilder uh, reworked uh, "World in My Eyes" and, and "Fly on the Windscreen," and those had a lot more of the trip hop elements, uh, especially when compared to their uh, studio recordings. Well, Ian, thank you so much for bringing this record to us. Uh, a perfect, you know. Uh, pair or not parallel, but a uh, uh, companion episode to our Depeche Mode roundtable from yeah. uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, this was one that I I initially considered uh, for my inaugural pick, and I'm like, no, I need the Depeche Mode in the '90s when they you lost. Had to, you their, had to line it up. I, I I had to line it up. Like I said, <laughs> I mean, because obviously, I mean, if we didn't have that episode, I mean, we could have easily gone down the Depeche Mode rabbit. Right, too easily. I mean, last year they they lost to the Cure, uh, and and that. So then I had to pivot and decide. Okay, I'm gonna try to find something else for a pick. And but then when I knew I had the round table, it's like, okay, uh, I'm doing this. <laughs> well, yeah, that worked out perfectly uh, with that episode in this episode. So it gives everybody a nice little uh, um, bookend uh, pair of episodes if they want to learn yeah. about all the Depeche I, Mode happenings in the I 90s were associated. Yeah, I think this is one of the rare uh, Dig Me Out episodes that has a, a sister episode. It's true. And Usually uh, it's just from us reviewing the, the same band twice. Yeah. Like your, like your paws and your seaweeds and yeah. uh, a few other ones. Yeah, so, I think Sound, I think Soundgarden's the only other one where you yes. get a round table and then... I, I believe you're right. Yeah. Well... If people listening to this are curious what we're talking about with all these uh, Patreon things and polls and that sort of stuff, you can join us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com and you get to vote in our monthly album tournament polls. Uh, a whole bunch of albums enter, one album leaves, suggested by folks through digmeoutpodcast.com. We had a lot of uh, suggestions in the past week, a lot of stuff I had never heard of coming in over the last week from people whose name I didn't recognize unless uh, Rich is using other uh, aliases as he submits things. <laughs> Just kidding, Rich. We love you. Um, it's also where you go to sign up for the box newsletter, which comes out weekly via our Substack, 
It is a release calendar of new 80s, 90s, and aughts-related music, movies, TV shows, books, etc., plus two one-minute reviews of new releases. And finally, Apple Podcasts is where you go to sign up, or excuse me, to leave feedback uh, for us about this show, preferably in the positive end of things. That's um, the ones that will keep our egos properly stroked. So, uh, Ian, thank you once again for joining us. This yes, thanks fun. for having me. Uh, for JM Tim, we're out. I'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.